0: hello 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 welcome to the coffee dots in a conversation with no boundaries as long as it's about coffee we talk about it my name is martin from the coffee dots 18 years ago that was 2002 oxfam an international non-profit organization, ringed the bell about the global crisis in the coffee sector. We'd love to check if there was any improvement since, but that's for after looking back and remember what the crisis was all about. It was a voluminous report published by Oxfam International in 2002, written by Karis Grazer and Sophia Tickel and assisted by Oxfam staff, partners and coffee experts across the world. One part in that report titled, Mugged Poverty in Your Coffee Cup, speaks about power imbalances in the market, penniless farmers, profiting roasters, starting from the roots of the crisis. (music) The coffee market, back then, is facing a crisis of slumping prices and falling quality. For farmers, the loss of quality means zero prices. Even for Arabica varieties that once earned a high premium, this is bad for farmers, bad for coffee drinkers, and ultimately, bad for the roasters. Behind this devastating situation lie four major factors. One, market restructuring from managed flooded. Second, power imbalances in the market, penniless farmers, profiting roasters. Third, new technologies and techniques driving down quality. Fourth, no alternatives, the failure of rural development. Let's start with market restructuring, from managed to flooded. The market in 2002, that's where we're speaking, is severely oversupplied. The volume of coffee produced to be traded far outstrips demand. Production in 2001-2002 is estimated at 115 million bags, each one weighing 60 kilograms compared with consumption of 105 to 106 million bags. Supply has been growing at more than 2% each year, outstripping growth in demand of 1 to 1.5%. This year on Euro basis, supply has built up stocks now estimated, now that means 2002, estimated at over 40 million bags. Even if supply were to come into line with demand anytime soon, the presence of these stocks would still keep the coffee price at a depressed level. Three reasons explain why and how supply and demand have got so far out of line. The end of the managed market in the 1989, major new entrants into the market, and lagging demand in traditional Western markets. First, the breakdown of the managed market. Over the past 15 years, that is 2002 backwards, the coffee market has changed radically. Until 1989 coffee, like most commodities, was traded in a managed market regulated by the International Coffee Agreement Governments in both producing and consuming nations sought to agree predetermined supply levels by setting export quotas by producing countries. The aim was to keep the price of coffee relatively high and relatively stable within a price band or corset ranging from 1.20 dollars to 1.40 cents. To prevent oversupply, countries had to agree not to exceed their fair share of coffee exports. If, however, prices rose above the selling level, Producers were permitted to exceed their quotas to meet the surge in demand. Disagreement between members led to the effective breakdown of the agreement in 1989. Opposition from the United States, which subsequently left as a member, was a major factor. The agreement survives, administered by the International Coffee Organization, but It has lost its power to regulate the supply of coffee through quotas and the price corset. Prices for coffee are determined on the two big future markets based in London and New York, with each market trading particular varieties and grades of coffee. The London market is the benchmark for Robusta coffee, the New York for Arabica. The price of coffee is influenced by a huge number of contracts for coffee that are traded, which far exceeds the physical amount of coffee that changes hand. From the perspective of producer countries, the agreement brought a golden era of good and stable prices compared with the present development disaster. From 1975 to 1989, though prices fluctuated significantly, they remained relatively high and rarely fell below the ICA price flow of $1.20. In sharp comparison, once the agreement broke down and the price corset ended in 1989, prices dropped dramatically and from the trucha prices spikes in 1995 and 1997 caused by frost ruining frost ruining the brazilian crop prices have fallen very low even below the average cost of production critics point to many reasons for the agreement breaking down. There was a cumbersome political horse trading in the struggle to capture larger quotas, and it was difficult for new producers trying to enter the market. Despite agreed quotas, additional volumes leaked out to countries outside the agreement, undermining its intended prices and undermining trust. Some in the industry believe that price corset laid the ground for overproduction because the coffee price was artificially set too high. But others argue that the current glut probably owes its origin more to the price hikes of 1994, 1995, and 1997 than to the high coffee prices of the 1980s. Proposals to revive the agreement are impeded by the apparent lack of political will to make it work. Consumer nations show no willingness to participate at present, and producer nations may not be willing or able to abide by their own rules. In the absence of consumer country support, producer countries did attempt to limit their own export, but the initiative collapsed in 2001. The lack of will to revive this approach to managing markets through quotas does not mean that other approaches could not work, especially those that would operate through market mechanisms. The ICO has developed just such an approach, a scheme to reduce the amount of coffee traded on grounds of quality. But this initiative will only work if rich countries and coffee roasters back it. In the process, there was the enter of the giants, Brazil and Vietnam. Brazil and Vietnam have reshaped the world's coffee supply. Ten years before 2002, Vietnam was barely a statistical blip in the coffee world, producing just 1.5 million bags. Its agriculture economy was open to the world market during the 90s, with the government providing subsidies to encourage farmers to grow coffee. By 2000, it had become the second largest producer in the world with 15 million bags to its name, largely produced on small farm holdings. Brazil, on the other hand, is not a newcomer. It has long been the world's largest producer, but production has recently been boosted by changes in how and where coffee is grown. Increased mechanization, intense production methods, and a geographic shift away from the traditional frost-prone growing areas have all increased yields. The forthcoming and widely anticipated bumper crop from Brazil of setting declines in exports elsewhere will mean a continuing imbalance in supply. In addition to dramatically increased supply, the impact for traditional coffee producing countries is serious. They now face competition from unprecedented levels of productivity. Patrick Install, the managing director of EFICO, a green coffee trader, said or asked, To give you an idea of the difference in some areas of Guatemala, it will take over 1000 people working one day each to fill the equivalent of one container of 275 bags, each bag weighing 69 kilograms. In the Brazilian Cerrado, you need five people and a mechanical harvester for two or three days to fill a container. One drives, and the other P. How can a Central American family farms compete against that? What were the triggers of the jump in world coffee production and the resulting oversupply? Freak price hikes in 1994, 1995 and 1997 due to frost in Brazil certainly encouraged countries and their farmers into the market. But other factors were also at play in producer countries, national policies, new technologies and currency movements were also important. Then comes the lagging demand. The United States, Germany, France and Japan, between them, consume half of world coffee exports. While coffee production has grown rapidly, demand for coffee in the developed world has seen sluggish growth, although newer markets such as Eastern Europe show greater promise. The big coffee companies spend millions of dollars on advertising each year, but they have failed to stop rich consumers turning to alternative drinks. To understand how badly coffee consumption has done compared with the growth in soft drinks in the United States, the world's largest consumer market, this is not a worldwide picture, however. Nestle whose share of the United States market is relatively small states that it has boosted consumption of Nescafe by 40% over the last 10 years. The combination of oversupply, increased production, and lagging demand has created a severely imbalanced market which cannot simply be left to its own devices if supply and demand are to be brought back into line. The human toll of such an approach is unacceptable. The market makes no suggestion as to what farming families are supposed to live on while waiting several years for the market to clear. What does it mean the power imbalances in market, penniless farmers, profiting the roasters? While the crisis has been going on, coffee has been a bonanza market for the transnational roaster companies. Far from getting a fair share of its profitability, producer countries have collectively been receiving a smaller and smaller share of the market's value. Ten years ago, producer countries earned $10 billion from a coffee market worth around thirty billion. A decade later, they receive less than 6 billion of export earnings from a market that has more than doubled in size. That is a drop in their share from over 30% of the market to under 10%. Today, coffee farmers receive 1% or less of the price of a cup of coffee sold in a coffee bar they receive roughly 6% of the value of a pack of coffee sold in supermarkets and grocery. How marginal the actual coffee beans have become to the whole business of selling the beverage to consumer is. In 1984, green bean costs constituted 64% of the U.S. retail price. By 2001, the raw material price as a proportion of the final retail value had fallen to 8%. By 2001, the raw material price as a proportion to the final retail value had fallen to 18%. Some markets may be giving consumers a better deal than others but in all of them, the importance of coffee beans to the final retail price has fallen dramatically. There is a vast imbalance of power in the global coffee supply chain. Farmers face a whole series of obstacles, starting with a very low international price for coffee. But some farmers Oxfam spoke with also complained of having to accept the price offered by the trader and of having very little, if any, power to negotiate. If farmers process their coffee, removing the outlayer of the coffee cherry, they can demonstrate the quality or grade of their beans and so negotiate a better price. But if their coffee is sold in its cherry form, they are not rewarded for its as yet unknown quality. In Peru, for instance, even when the coffee is sold as semi-processed parchment, farmers can still be short-changed. Carmela Rodriguez from Source Peru said, we see that the coffee is dry, but the buyers say, give us a discount. I don't know what grade it is, but I think they are taking advantage of us because they know we have to sell to them. Farmers reported that they sold the better quality coffee to the cooperatives where they were rewarded with premiums, but still found the traders useful as ready buyers their lower quality coffee. Even though traders squeeze extra margins for themselves out of farmers, the real margins in the market are made after export by the roaster companies. In sharp contrast with the current losses or at best, tiny margins. Made by farmers and exporters in developing countries, the roaster companies in the United States and Europe are making extraordinary profits on their retail coffee business. Oxfam International interviewed many players in the supply chain in Uganda to trace the rising price of coffee beans as they made their journey from the farmer's tree to the jars sitting on supermarket shelves in the United Kingdom and found that. In this case, the farmer got just 2.5% of the retail price of the coffee. In the United States, the figure would be 4.5% of the retail price. Beyond the story in Uganda, Oxfam, Commissioned consultant to construct an indicative value chain to try to assess what percentage on average of the end value farmers were getting different countries around the world and found that farmers of the cheaper or cheapest type of coffee doing no processing to their coffee cherries are getting just 6.5% of the final retail value, like for like. This value chain uses official price data where available, weighed to take into account different market share. Even this figure is probably an overestimate since the official data on price to producers may overstate what farmers actually get. As we said from the beginning of this episode, we will get back to this. Uh, Oxfam International report about the coffee crisis across the world 18 years ago, that was in 2002. From the coffee dots, we close this episode. And until next time, my name is Martin saying take care.